0: Welcome to the Living Leadership Podcast, equipping leaders to live in Christ joyfully and serve him faithfully. Welcome to the Living Leadership Podcast. On this week's episode, I'm delighted to share with you a talk from the Pastoral Refreshment Conference in 2011
1: let me just say this and uh, because you're seasoned um, especially to the leaders of living leadership you'll understand this i i think god has done something wonderful uh, among you and i want to have a specific word when we come to one of the points in the scripture uh, but i just wanted to say as someone who's been involved in in movements before that it's a spiritual principle that you can't manage a movement you can guard the values and you can witness to those values but the river of life flows in the desert where it will. And I think you need to ponder on that as leaders. There is a great danger, I think, about a desire to manage the movement, because in the early days you have to manage to bring it to birth. But when God has done his best work of bringing to birth, then you guard the values, the birthright and you allow the river to flow uh, in whatever direction God wishes it to flow. We're all involved in um, church life planning with uh, one-year budgets and uh, three-year strategies and five-year leadership development programs and 10-year building plans. In fact, someone has suggested that time management is the new eschatology of the church. (laughs) Uh, And time really hangs heavy with this journey with Joseph, which began in chapter 37 and will conclude in chapter 50. When he was 17, we began the story, and we will attend his funeral service when he's 110. (laughs) 22 years between the teenager's dream and the fulfillment of brothers coming and bowing down, two long years in prison, 14 years between the prophecy that there will be seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine, 14 years before that is totally fulfilled, and then 70 years between the first reconciliation with the brothers and the total joy assurance that they needed, that they were forgiven. That is heavy with time. That's why I've called this section, God's providence is a slow burner. And I'm going to give it to you in spatial headings. And the first one is this. The length of God's providence challenges our faith. That's chapter 40, which we've just read. At the end of chapter 39, Joseph is in prison and in charge. The prison warder has trusted him with everything. At the end of this chapter we've just read, Joseph is still in prison, but he's a forgotten man. His fellow prisoners in chapter 40 have offended Pharaoh. He's been angry with uh, the cup bearer and the baker. And they find themselves in prison dreaming. And after one of their nights of dreams, the pastoral sensitivity of Joseph looks at them and says, why are you disconsolate? Can I help you? And uh, they tell him about the dreams. And he confesses his faith. He confessed (laughs) his faith to Potiphar's wife. Said, I can't do this. It's a wickedness against God. He now, for the second time, confesses his faith. Interpretation of dreams belong to God alone. And so he, first of all, interprets the uh, cupbearer's dream. But I want you to notice in verse 14, the poignant plea. Listen to the language of um, uh, what he says there. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh. Get me out of this prison for I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews. And even here, I've done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. It's interesting that in the heart of his ministry, there is the ache of a longing. It's never far from the service, And we know that feeling that you can conduct all that you have to do as leaders and pastors, but never far from the service. in this particular case, has God forgotten my prayers. Uh, verse 18 and 19, I just love this because it shows that we can have these moments of poignancy and I just wonder if there's a moment of sensitivity here, the way he delivers the baker's dream, tells him what's going to happen. And the man who's sensitive enough to say, you look a bit disgust, but what's the matter? Doesn't have anything to say to this poor man who's going to hang. And then you have the Gap between the faithful confession of verse 8 and the desperate plight of the minister in verse 23. The cupbearer didn't remember Joseph. He forgot him. Now it's 11 years since he had the teenage dream of his brothers and family bowing down, and now two long years in prison. How do we know it's two long years? Uh, because it says so 41 and verse 1. It echoes Matthew chapter 11 and John the Baptist. After all the fruitful ministry of being the road mender, filling in the potholes, reducing everything to make a level path, here he comes, behold the Lamb of God. The fruitful preparatory ministry of the one who eventually had to decrease in order that the Lord might increase, he decreased into a prison cell. Heartbroken, disconsolate, about to die. Are you the one who is to come, or should we be looking for somebody else? Four or five years ago, I was uh, part of a human rights, Christian human rights uh, team that went to Vietnam. Uh, We were responsible for meeting with the communist government who, like a lot of the South Asian tiger economies, were emerging onto the world market. Um, China is, is the huge story of this, where we have to keep knocking at the door of our politicians and businessmen and say, by all means, let's do trade, but do not brush under the carpet the human rights, especially when it comes, as we're concerned, with uh, Christians. And um, we met, and we met, in fact, with, I thought, a very sympathetic government. They were mainly younger people. They weren't old communists. And uh, uh, during the course of the meeting, we had taken with us uh, Vietnamese Christians who were now living uh, in exile, as it were. One of them had the wonderful name of Pastor Quay. We all made the joke about funerals. Did he do a good funeral? Passed away. Um, And um, uh, he had been a brave and courageous witness in some very difficult years in Vietnam. He had been in prison for three years. And he said that whilst he was in prison, there came a moment when he asked the Lord if he had forgotten him. And the Lord directed him to John chapter 13 and the washing of the disciples' feet where the disciples resisted. And then eventually Jesus said the phrase, um, afterwards you will understand. And he went on to write a book called After Which You Will Understand, concerning his prison years, the years of waiting, the length of God's providence, challenging his faith with Joseph, with the Vietnamese pastor, with me, with you. You can't have a name like coffee and a personality like mine uh, and not occasionally be called Instant Coffee. And uh, certainly in my younger days, uh, that was my uh, nickname. Because I am a visionary. I see where the organization needs to go. And I need other people to say, well, this is how we're going to get there. The detailed people who will be members of the team. And on the way through consultations and referral back, and the inevitable meeting with the treasurer or the finance team, which for me is always a heart-sinking moment. But that is part of the waiting period. I often say to younger pastors to read 2 Timothy 2, where Paul says, you're to be a good farmer of Jesus Christ. That implies the four seasons of farming. Say to any of the younger leaders I work with, always find out what season the church is in. And if you arrive in wintertime, then as a farmer, you know harvest is coming. But there's got to be a sense of just as the farmer knows what the season is, the hardworking farmer understands the seasons of the church, the seasons of leadership, the seasons of ministry. And if, like Joseph, you find yourself in that season, when it seems there is a delay in God's providence of promises, dreams being fulfilled, wait God's time. Before we move on from this section, let me show you this very uh, significant verse in Genesis chapter 15. Uh, uh, Joseph wouldn't have been aware of this unless uh, it had been passed on through the family traditions, but it's revealed to us, Genesis 15 uh, and verses 13 to 16, God's words to Abraham. The Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, brackets, Egypt, and they will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve, opening chapters of Exodus, as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Bill Arnold has a wonderful quote on this, and you may want to note it. He says this, God pulls back the curtain on the future so Abraham could have confidence in the present. God could do that in a little way this morning to you. He could give you a moment of revelation that he hasn't forgotten the dream or the vision or the promise. He pulls back the future and says, I want you to have confidence In my providence, it's stretching your faith at the moment because the providence of God is a slow burner. But I haven't forsaken the vision. It's the second thing. It's the height of God's providence that extends our ministry. Egypt is uh, still front page news. And I wonder if President Mubarak is sleeping at nighttime. Chapter 41 opens, and by the way, we're now into the number 10 Downing Street, the Kremlin, the White House, all rolled into one. This is a powerful center. Pharaoh, uh, one of Mr. Mubarak's ancestors, is not sleeping well at night. He has all the power and none of the power. In fact, he has all the power in certain spheres except dreamland. He comes face to face with his own powerlessness. He knows everything and he knows nothing. He has all power and at this moment no power. His troubled dreams center around, you can read it, the seven fat cows and the seven thin cows. And the seven thin cows uh, come and eat up the seven fat cows. And then the seven healthy and good grain and the thin and scorched Thin grain and the thin grain consume the healthy and good grain. And he's helpless as a world leader at this moment. He's got his court consultants and experts and magicians and wise men, and they are helpless too. (laughs) It's a wonderful picture of our societies all around the world. In our own UK society, we're often long on analysis and short on wisdom. We're high on polemic and we're short on solutions. Think of all the issues. Most of the major issues of the day have a moral dimension. Asbos and uh, youth culture, um, financial austerity, how shall we live? Just roll them all out. Pages of analysis. And when there is wisdom, there's a conflict of opinion as to which is the way forward. In a former life, I I had uh, the responsibility occasionally to represent the the fee churches at state occasions. And I found myself on uh, one uh, occasion at Westminster Abbey uh, for the opening of the General Synod. Every five years, as Anglicans here will know, the Queen, as head of the Church of England, comes to to open the, the church parliament. There's a major service followed by a gathering in church house. Uh, it coincided. It was sometime in the 90s, and you can uh, signify the date by the event that I'm going to share with you. Princess Diana had just done a few days previously her television interview um, regarding um, her relationship with Charles. And uh, it had caused waves around the land. And uh, in the timing of things, here comes the queen and the duke to this service. I was sitting very near the front, and uh, it was a communion service. Uh, they read Philippians chapter 2, which concludes, with at the name of Jesus, every knee, every knee shall bow. The choir sang the most beautiful arrangement of, Be still for the presence of the Lord is moving in this place. We sang it a few days ago. And moments after that, the Queen left her seat. She doesn't do it now, probably because of age, but at that moment, she came and knelt to take communion and uplifted her hands to receive the bread from then Archbishop George Carey. In that moment, I didn't see a monarch kneeling, I saw a mother and grandmother kneeling. I saw a human being kneeling as we would kneel, in need. Imagine, even as Christian families our families get into distress. But when the distress of your family is carried in news channels across the world, there is not only the distress <laughs> of mind and body, there is the agony of shame and maybe disgrace. And I saw in that moment, as I see it here, that throughout scripture you see helpless monarchs, helpless leaders of state. Pilate was helpless. He didn't really know what to do with Jesus. When Daniel appears, he appears before an emperor who is helpless. Pharaoh, the Pharaoh of Exodus and the chapters that follow, he's helpless. He's angry. He hates Moses. He doesn't know what to do with the Hebrews. And there's a sense in which this is where I think we need to have a big vision of the grace that God gives to us, it's to flow somewhere. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verses 1 and 2, uh, where Paul says to his young pastor, he says to, uh, to Timothy, I urge you then, first of all, that prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. The height of providence is that God extends our ministries into areas of national importance. Joseph um, had this gift of dream interpretation in prison. But he's about to be launched with his gifts onto a much bigger arena. Verse 9 in this chapter, the national emergency, prompts the bad memory of the steward. He's said, oh yeah, do you know, I've suddenly remembered. And he comes to Pharaoh and verse 14, Joseph is sent for. Verses 15 and 16, Pharaoh invites Joseph. And out of the overflow of Joseph's life comes another confession of faith. There's always re- uh, been the confession before Potiphar's wife. And then in the prison, another confession. Interpretations belong to God. And now before the mightiest in the land, he confesses, I can't, but God can. He, as it were, says before we read it in the New Testament, what is impossible with people is possible with God. And he not only offers the interpretation, uh, the double dream means to you, Pharaoh, it's fixed. In other words, not fixed in the Jacob sense of fixed, but determined, ordained, it will happen. There will be years of plenty, followed by years of famine. And he could have left it there. But verse 33 follows it up with a recommendation. John Calvin says this, true prophets don't merely predict, they propose remedies for impending evil. It's a history of evangelicals through the earth. We need to recover that sense, not just to bewail how society is, but to propose remedies for righteous living, righteous ways of living in society. And then is this, uh, a little bit of Jacob coming through, or is this pure driven snow proposal? Verse 33, what you really need. Pharaoh is a wise and discerning man who will appoint commissioners and a good strategy to prepare for what's coming. And then verse 38, Pharaoh uh, asks the rhetorical question, where can we find such a person in whom is the spirit of God? God blessed the household of Potiphar. That blessing and favor on Joseph is now touching the highest in the land. Pharaoh detects the spirit of God in Joseph, who doth prosper thy work and defend thee. And immediately, without anybody saying anything, he says, well, you're the man. And in moments, he appoints in verses 39 to 41, I put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. I mean, what a political risk. <clears throat> Pharaoh puts the future of his kingdom in the hands of a man he's known for just a few minutes, and a Hebrew at that. Seven years before the plan will unfold, and 14 years before the prophecy will be fulfilled. In human terms, a huge political risk. But the Spirit of God that was in Joseph has also landed in the mind and heart of Pharaoh. And look at the global impact, verse 57. Verse 57 tells us that uh, the countries that came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the world. And I don't want you as living leadership to let this moment pass. The passage that came to me, which you must reflect on, is Ezekiel 47. And the rivers that flow from the temple, they don't go round and round in the temple, they flow out of the temple. And they flow out of the temple into the neediest land. The ankle, the knee, the thigh deep, the waters of grace to swim in. And the impossible happens. Even the Dead Sea is refreshed. And somewhere in all our agendas, we've got to have that vision of the flow of grace. If all it does is flow around the church, I don't believe that is the missionary God that we're serving. The greater flow of grace in our lives should not only be a blessing to the church as we serve, but the communities where we live and the nation that we love and the world for which Jesus died. Father, I think there are times that we feel the church in exile. Uh, more than one commentator has said that we're, a, uh, uh, we're living in a cold climate for Christians um, I don't fear for that any more than you do, because I believe that God's hand is upon his church. We might be a purer and more effective people. Nominalism might go out of the window. We may be fewer, but those left standing will be those who will say, I am here to run the race, to keep the faith, and to arrive at his house as a faithful messenger. God wants blessing and prosperity, I think, beyond the church, for his people. I first uh, visited Moscow in 1986. I went with a uh, delegation of British church leaders. Uh, Gorbachev had just um, uh, begun his message of perestroika. It was in a few months of the great Chernobyl disaster. And uh, a few years earlier, Khrushchev had boasted that he would parade the last Christian in the old Soviet Union on television. And that would be the death of the church. We went at one stage, a delegation of us, to meet the then Director of Religious Affairs to appeal on behalf of prisoners. Uh, One or two uh, people had been in prison. We weren't allowed to see them. They were 3,000 miles away in Siberia. When we went in to his office in Moscow, um, he had a Bible on his desk, and he took the Bible down. And even as uh, we began to sort of name names, he stopped us, turned Mm -hmm. to the Sermon on the Mount, that part which says, before uh, you uh, take um, the sawdust out of my eye, take the plank out of your eye. And he, he began to sort of berate the United Kingdom for all the things that he thought was wrong with us. Don't you dare come to my country. And he had a very trivial view of the church, and especially back to evangelicals. That was 1986, and I have to say we were Uh, Rather relieved, although it was a great blessing to meet with Christians, especially prisoners' families, we were relieved to be leaving. I went back last March, a year ago, 2010. Every four years, the Baptists and Evangelicals have a a huge gathering. Remember the number of time zones in, in Russia, as it is now, a huge country. So they can't do it every year, but every four years they bring people together. And we were meeting in Moscow in a large theater, and in the opening session. Their present on the platform was a representative from the mayor of Moscow's office. And their president on the platform was a, 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 an official from the president of the country, his office. And at some point, they wheeled these two dignitaries up. And what did they say? They said, we want to thank you as Christians for the contribution that you are bringing to our nation. I want to thank you when nobody else cares. You care for the orphans on the street. You're the ones who take the homeless in. You run feeding programs. It was a Joseph moment. And I simply say to you, the extent of God's providence reaches our ministries and takes our ministries to heights we could never dream of. Being my witness and testimony, it's not the purpose now for me to share, but I have been staggered in the past five or ten years at doors that have opened for me, doors that I didn't even ask to be opened. And I tell you what, and I pass this on. I, whenever appropriate, it was nearly always appropriate, I never failed to offer to pray for those in power because the Bible says we're to. And even if it's as you're saying goodbye at the door, uh, I, or, I offer the ironic blessing as I leave the office of an official. Sometimes it's appropriate to prepare and present a Bible. And uh, I just want to testify that the, the height of God's promise extends our ministries. Take that thought away. Sometimes, this isn't my thought, somebody else said this before me, for those of us involved in some very difficult social situations, to go on pulling bodies out of the river and not go upriver to say who's throwing these bodies in. (coughs) And that will take you into the places of power. The third thing is this. We've had the length of God's providence, which challenges our faith, and the height of God's providence, which extends our ministries. The third thing is the depth of God's providence, which heals our brokenness. And this is a, a huge chunk of scripture from verses chapter 42 through to 50. So I'm going to have to give you uh, waymarks along the way. Every church that I've pastored uh, at some point, Uh, Early on, within the first six months, I've said to the uh, leadership something, and they'll say, oh, I wouldn't open that cupboard if I was you, pastor. And they're not talking about a cupboard. They're talking about a cupboard. (laughs) Every church has a cupboard, the cupboard where we put things that we don't know what to do with. They're to do with the parts. And sometimes, actually, people have a cupboard and say, this is the cupboard. And they actually have a little sign which says dealt with. And as they go past, they don't genuflect because they're good evangelicals, but they assert, they acknowledge it and say, that's the cupboard. Look at chapter 41 and verse 51. Remember, 22 years now since we've had the episode of Joseph being put in the pit. Chapter 41 and verse 51. Two sons born to Joseph. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh. And he named him Anasseh because he says, God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. That's the sign on the door of the cupboard. It's dealt with. He goes on to say, he named his second son, Ephraim, and said, this is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. So as far as he's concerned, it's dealt with. Now we know, because we know the whole story, that we've got an unreconciled family here brothers who haven't repented, Jacob who's grieving because he doesn't know what really happened to his son. And we've got Joseph who really hasn't offered forgiveness. And if you doubt that, then we'll follow through this story. Do you know what? It's easier as prime minister of Egypt to organize a major famine relief program for thousands of people than to reconcile one family. Does that sound familiar? the mighty things that can be done in our church, and that one sticking point that lies in the cupboard over which we have put the sign, dealt with. Well, the providence of God, the deep work of healing, needs to now reach the the broken places in this situation. And the healing streams of grace are going to flow. And because of restrictions on time, I'm going to do it this way. I want to point out to you the five weepings of Joseph. The five times that he wept. And this is going to illustrate, I hope, the depth of God's providence which heals our brokenness. Now, in chapter 42, the opening verses, you have the nightmare scenario. I mean, it's great when the cupboard's there, the signs on the door Manasseh, God's helped me forget, and there's a lock on the door. And then without warning, an event opens the door. I was having dinner. Janet and I were having dinner with some friends uh, the other night. And there were a couple there that we know but didn't know very well. Last year, and this guy will be in his early 60s, out of the blue, his mother confessed on her deathbed that the man he thought was his father wasn't, in fact, his father. His real father was a Polish airman, and uh, his real father had died, and this other man, another airman, had come along, an Englishman, and had married. The mother, knowing that the child that she was carrying was not his, could never understand why there was no affection between his dad and himself. Could never understand why his dad by now was dead, by the way you never understand where his dad never came to a football match, never came to an athletics, never came to a prize game. The cupboard is suddenly opened. And Joseph's brothers are in the bread here. And Joseph may have been visiting one of the famine distribution points, and the dream is fulfilled. The brothers bow down before the prime minister of Egypt. Okay, well, why didn't they recognize it? Well, 22 years have gone by. He's very different in dress, no hair, shaved in the Egyptian style, (laughs) royal robes. And he doesn't speak to them, although he understands Hebrew, he speaks in Egyptian. And he speaks through a Hebrew interpreter. And why didn't he forgive them? Verse 9 may give you a clue. Then he remembered his dreams. In that shock moment when the cupboard that he thought had dealt was written on it, the memories come flooding back. And it's a reminder to all of us that reconciliation is costly and it's slow because it has to reach the deepest wounds where we are hurting. He puts them all in prison and perhaps in three days he sobers up sort of. Sort of so that in verse 18, uh, he can come and say something that he hadn't said earlier. I fear God. His first reaction is, you're spies. And then you have the first weeping which is chapter 42 and verse 24. Remember, he hasn't spoken a word in Hebrew, but he can understand them speaking in Hebrew, and they begin to say to one another, surely we're being punished because of our brother. It was never far from their service. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we wouldn't listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. Reuben said, didn't I tell you? Not to sin against the boy, but you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an account for his blood. They didn't realize that Joseph, Joseph could understand them, since he was using an interpreter. Joseph turned away from them and began to weep. I think these were tears of grief. I think these were the tears that were the tears of memory. The flashback to the darkness, the desolation, the disgrace of the pit, being led away in chains. The second weeping is in chapter 43, in the middle of chapter 43. It's a reunion with Benjamin. Remember, he still hasn't revealed who he is. These are tears of grief. I should have said the previous were tears of memory. These are tears of grief. Because when he sees Benjamin, he can't say, I'm your brother Joseph. He simply asks and says, is this your youngest brother? Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. And he went into a private room and he wept there. Benjamin was also the blood brother, the true blood brother of his mother, Rachel. She died giving birth to Benjamin. That word deeply moved is the same word that Hosea uses. It's a yearning word. It's God yearning for his people. The way in which he blesses his kid brother, Benji. I think there's a real struggle going on in Joseph's life here. The healing streams have still not stopped flowing. The work is not yet done. Because look what happens. Um, They don't know who he is, although he knows who they are. From verse 22, um, there is this meal, I beg your pardon, from verse 20, um, uh, 31. Uh, Serve the food. And they, they ate separately. But he could hear them talking. And the meal over the fellowship and all the fun and the banter. and I don't know how you are at Christmas and the family. I I just know enough families to know it can be a miserable season. But things you hadn't even thought of whilst you're in geographical place A. Somehow the bringing of the family together again and hearing them. The old jokes, the banter and the, the whole mood and atmosphere. Many, many of us are quite pleased to be traveling home at the end of Christmas. That's the kind of mood setting that is here. And Joseph must have thought, are they really repentant? And we're asking, when will Joseph truly forgive them? Chapter 44, I have to say to you, I'm going to suggest that it's at this moment that Joseph departs from the script. Now, a failure to exercise grace does not disqualify us from receiving grace. That's why it's called amazing but chapter forty four verse five and thirteen for him to descend into the deceit of saying, "The cup my master uses for his magic, and I use my cup for magic purposes. Calvin rightly says this is a sinful moment in Joseph's life. You see to To Pharaoh, he has said, only God can interpret dreams. And now he's saying to these people, I can interpret life through magic. I'm not going to judge Joseph because I've been there. I grieve over mistakes I've made in ministry, getting angry in a deacon's meeting, being rude, being impatient. I've had to live as all of us have with those moments when we know we've got it wrong. And that great verse of comfort, when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. And you're now introduced in verse 18 of chapter 44 to what's been called one of the most moving speeches of the Old Testament. Martin Luther called this a model Old Testament prayer, the penitence. It's the prayer of Judah. And it begins at verse 18, where Judah comes corporately on behalf of all of them and says, God has uncovered your servants, plural guilt. We may be innocent of the cup, which Joseph knew, but we're guilty of selling our brother Joseph, which he also knew, but they didn't. And notice in verse seventeen that this wonderful beginning of speech. Joseph is still not on the script. He's, running, he's working from somebody else's script. Only the man who was found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you go back to your father in peace. Joseph, this isn't where God's working. Do you realize now God is speaking to you through <laughs> Judah? Up until now, all the words of grace have come through you. Before Potiphar's wife, in the prison, before Pharaoh. But God has now shown how amazing his grace is. He can choose a sinful man like Judah. And you're going to see the work of reconciliation begin in the life of the person who was among those who caused you the deepest offense. And this wonderful healing stream, which reaches its pinnacle in verse 33, where you actually have the language of vicarious suffering and substitution. Now, please let your servant remain here as my lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. I will take the place of everybody else. What's happened is a world famine, a frail father and a lost brother. God has used this event to speak to this group of brothers. And with great storytelling power, We're left as readers saying, will Joseph respond to this moment? And he does, the third weeping. Chapter 45, Joseph couldn't control himself any longer. He cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. This is the weeping of reconciliation. This is the moment. You see all the language there. I mean, it was if he was shocked when the cupboard was open, how do you think they felt? His brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Joseph said to them, patting the seat, come close to me. I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And you know how in distress, sometimes with a child, you have to go on repeating the same words so they get the message. In their distress, how many times did he say, God sent me ahead of you? Verse five, verse seven, God sent me here ahead of you. Verse eight, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. All those years of waiting has prepared his heart for this moment. I can now interpret to you the terrible event that happened. God's hand was in all that mess. And here we are today. That leads you to the fourth weeping. In chapter um, 45 and verse 14, he throws his arms around his brother, Benjamin. They both know who they are now. And Benjamin embraced him weeping and he kisses all his brothers and they wept over them. And what a line. Afterwards, the brothers talked with him. I bet they did. What kind of sharing? These are the tears of joy. Both cupboards are open. Everything's out. The cupboard is bare. There's cleansing and It's a fantastic God's providence, which burns as a slow burner, that healing stream has reached all the broken parts, or has it? 17 years go by. Turn over the pages to chapter 50. There's a state funeral for Father Jacob. It's quite a contrast, actually, to Joseph's funeral. And uh, you can read all about that in the opening chapters. But now the, the old man is dead and buried. And verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph, 17 years later, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to them? So they sent word to Joseph saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you, forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph went. These were to be, I believe, the tears of assurance that he wanted in the life of his brothers, is the past really wiped out? Living with the fear that we're not truly forgiven. Do you remember Marcus's testimony on the opening night? How many pastors in my own heart, I could ask this question. How many of us have actually lived with the idea that the harder I work, the more the Lord will be pleased with Peter was right when he said yesterday morning to the men's session, God loves you more as a person than he loves you as a pastor. If you ask me, as I do sometimes, give the 10 commandments of leadership, number one commandment, you must be secure in your identity as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Greatly loved, greatly cherished. You are my beloved child. I am well pleased with you. Before I lift a finger, to do anything. Why do you think those words were said over Jesus before he began his ministry? His identity preceded his message. And so if we ask God to wash away our sins by the blood of Jesus, praise the Lord, they are gone. That's this moment. And the magnificent words of Joseph, we must read them because it's the title of your conference which you gave. Joseph says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done to save me in many lives. He's not just forgiven them. He's giving them an interpretation of the bad thing that happened, but more. He's saying, do you realize there's a fruitfulness about this past, present, and future? Don't miss the future. Verse 21. Don't be afraid. I'm going to provide for you and your children. That is the overflowing message of the assurance of grace. The depths to which it reaches. I haven't got time to give you a fourth heading, but I'll give it to you. And as good preachers, you can work it out for yourself. It's the breadth of God's providence, which stretches from eternity to eternity. And it's really an exposition of Romans 8. God, before we were born, predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son we called and justified through his shed blood on the cross. And the other bookend of eternity, it won't be finished until we're glorified in glory with him. That is the breadth, the length, the breadth, the height, and the depth of the providence of God, which is a slow burner. Mike Iaconelli tells the story of nine-year-old Margaret. It started when she was nine years of age. And uh, she raced into the classroom late again. And Miss Garner, the teacher, was furious, decided to teach her a lesson. Margaret, we've been waiting for you. Come up to the front right now. She comes up to the front, and she was told to face the class, and it was then the nightmare began. Miss Garner addresses the whole class and says, Boys and girls, Margaret has been a bad girl. I've tried to make her responsible, but she doesn't want to learn, so we must teach her a lesson. We must face up to her, what a selfish person she's become. I want each of you to come up, take this piece of chalk, and write something bad about Margaret on the blackboard. And maybe this experience will motivate Margaret to become a better person. Margaret stands frozen next to Miss Garner, and one by one there begins a silent procession. To the blackboard, they write life-smothering words, Margaret's stupid, Margaret's selfish, Margaret's a dummy, and on and on it went, 25 scribblings, which screamed Margaret's badness from the blackboard. Forty years on, Iaconelli says. After suffering decades of depression and anxiety, she finally seeks help from a Christian counselor. And we pick up the story on the last day of what's been a two-year period of counselling. Well, Margaret, it's graduation day, says the counsellor. How are you feeling? Margaret says, I'm okay. The counsellor says, well, just to make sure you're okay before you graduate, um, I just want you to go back into the classroom once again. So Margaret was able to go back into the classroom and relive every moment. Every one of those 25 children that came down, every word that went up. She came to the end. And she said, that's it. And the teacher said, are you sure? Margaret, she said, you've left out one person. Margaret, you've neglected to see that someone else sitting at the back of the classroom. This person comes down towards your teacher who hands him the piece of chalk. And he walks up to the blackboard and he rubs off every word that is there. Do you recognize him, Margaret? It's Jesus. And he's writing beautiful words on the board. He's putting Margaret's loved, Margaret's beautiful. Margaret's gentle and kind. Margaret is strong. Margaret has great courage. Joseph wept and so did Margaret. But they were tears of joy. Because she knew the council was right. The graduation had come. Because it was a graduation in grace. And we come in all our need. And ask that the healing streams will flow to the deepest places of our lives. The healing streams are there to heal our brokenness. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you, thank you for taking us on this journey with Joseph. And we now know that we need time to work through of the many words and insights that you've given to us. We need the discipline of your Holy Spirit to know the significant things that need to be shared. We need to understand that which has been food for the journey. And we thank you for feeding us. For anything that has implications for our church, help us to choose the moment and the words. For anything that has significance beyond anything we could dream, ask or imagine. Then help us, we pray, to have courage when that moment comes. To put your word into action. To you, our loving Lord, our mighty Saviour, our coming King, be all praise and glory. In Jesus' strong name. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to the Living Leadership Podcast. We hope what you've heard today spurs you on in your walk with the Lord. If you're encouraged by today's episode, consider sharing it with a friend or colleague or leaving us a review on your podcast app of choice to help others find us. If you'd like to engage further with us on anything we've discussed today, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on any major social media application at Living Leaders, or you can visit our website, www.livingleadership.org, where you'll find even more support and resources to help you live in Christ joyfully, and serve Him faithfully. Blessings.